From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm your host, Megan Leach. I was in a church rectory when I first heard Tracy Chapman's song, Talking About a Revolution. I was 13, maybe 14, sitting in a circle of other awkward adolescents around a handheld CD player. A few minutes prior, our Catholic education teacher had passed around a handout with the song lyrics on one side and the Vatican's definition of preferential option for the poor on the other side. We were supposed to draw connections between them. I was a cradle Catholic, and yet I'd never heard the words preferential option for the poor before. I'd never learned anything about Catholic social teaching until this class. But listening to Chapman sing about welfare lines and economic revolution, something clicked inside me. This was radical stuff, and in a zealous, teenage way, I was all in. I wanted to know all about it. With some age, though, I've come to realize that Catholic social teaching is not just prophetic. It has pragmatic applications, if we take them seriously. Fortunately, our guest today, economist Dr. Tony Annett, takes Catholic social teaching very seriously. His new book, Cathonomics, examines our global economy through the lens of Catholic social teaching on solidarity, wealth redistribution, social democracy, and inequality. His conclusion? Our current economic system is exploiting inequality and perpetuating poverty. Since 1980, the wealthiest top 0.1% of Americans have seen their incomes grow by 320%. Meanwhile, incomes for the bottom 50% have barely budged. This reality is the result of policy choices, an intentional prioritization of corporate profit over the rights of workers, according to Tony. And we can change course with the help of Catholic social principles. In this context, preferential option for the poor isn't just a beatitude that tells us to care about poverty. It's a barometer by which we can measure our society, and it demands action. Preferential option for the poor reminds us that human flourishing cannot be captured in purely economic measures like GDP or stock market gains. If you're like me and you're not an economist, don't worry. Tony breaks down the basic definitions in a very accessible way. We also talk about his time at the International Monetary Fund, whether policies should fight poverty or wealth inequality, and what the economy gets wrong about human generosity. But our conversation is just a snapshot of the book. I highly recommend that you read it. Until then, though, here's my interview with Tony Annett. So I wanted to ask first off, you know, what what drew you to look at Catholic social teaching and what it has to say about economics and why should we be viewing economics through the lens of our faith? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll give you a little of my personal journey as to how I arrived at this position. So basically, I was a standardly trained economist, got my PhD back in 1998 from Columbia, went straight to work at the International Monetary Fund, where I spent 20 years. But especially after the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, I started to think that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way we approached economics. In other words, the global financial crisis, in my view, was not just a technocratic crisis that required technocratic solutions. It was a moral crisis that required moral solutions. And that get me 
exploring the tradition of Catholic social teaching. Uh, I've always been Catholic, um, uh, with an outsider's interest in Catholic social teaching, but I would say at this point in my life, no deep knowledge of it. So I started to read the encyclicals. I started to read more on the civil economy paradigm, various aspects of Catholic social teaching. And I just had this realization that this is actually a much healthier way of looking at economics than the way I was trained. And that offers, and not just in terms of who we are as human beings, it's much healthier and much more realistic in that regard, I would argue, um, than neoclassical economics, but also in terms of its very practical policy conclusions. People are often surprised by this, but Catholic social teaching is actually quite practical as well as, as well as theological. It does offer lots of very practical guidelines in terms of how you would structure and order uh, our global economic affairs. So that's kind of um, where I came from. Um, I would say one more point on that, is that a lot of people are in my shoes. They are looking for how do you reform economics? How do you make it more humane? How do you reduce inequality? How do you solve climate change? And I think they, a lot of people are coming to the realization that you need to ground it in different values. Well, this is a major advantage of Catholic social teaching. We know values quite well. So I think that in Catholic social teaching, we have a ready-made framework for guiding uh, the global economy today in terms of its values, its principles, and its orientation. So you mentioned your time at the International Monetary Fund. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about your experience there. And, you know, you mentioned in the book that you kind of bought into this prevailing economic paradigm um, at one part in your career there. Um, so how does that influence your perspective as you're thinking about inequality and economic trends? Well, yes, um, as I mentioned, so I was trained in what I call the neoliberal 90s. So I did my PhD in economics in the 90s. Um, and, you know, at that point, uh, what we now call neoliberalism was very much ascendant. And, and I had kind of bought into all of that because that was the economics I had learned. I wasn't exposed to any different options. And to be honest, a lot of the flaws that we now see in neoliberalism were not so evident back in the 90s. It took, a, it took a number of decades before we started to see the massive inequality the, and the kind of social discontent that arose um, in the wake of the neoliberal reforms uh, in the 1980s onwards. So I think, you know, when you are faced with new evidence, you should change your mind. And I certainly changed my mind on neoliberalism. But when I was at the IMF, I mean, I was there for 20 years. Um, for a lot of that time, I was a standard economist working on many different countries. I worked in the fiscal affairs department. I worked in the European department and in different areas. But for half of the time I was there, I was actually the speechwriter to the managing director. So I was Christine Lagarde's speechwriter. And that was quite a job that I really enjoyed. Um, 
you get to, you know, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but a speechwriter has a lot of power. You can get to insert things in speeches and hope that they won't get taken out. And if your principal likes them, then you can have some power. And, you know, so I was writing at the time when the IMF was reassessing a lot of, you know, its prior doctrine. It was talking a lot more about inequality, about climate change, about ethics and finance, about women in the economy. So all of these areas uh, I was able to, you know, to write on. And that was a, a very unique and exciting period for me. So I have no regrets about that period uh, of my career. You also mentioned in the beginning of the book that Pope Francis changed your life. I'm curious how. It's one of those moments that you, there are various moments in your life that you will always remember. Um, some of them are tragic moments, some of them are happy moments. But this moment was when, when the Cardinals chose Jorge Bergoglio to become Pope Francis in 2013. And I remember I was in the office. I wasn't really focused on work because I knew there was white smoke. I knew there was a new Pope and I wanted to know who it was. And when Pope Francis appeared on the balcony, you know, something just um, affected me so deeply. I knew that this was going to be a profoundly important pontificate. And I knew this was going to be, you know, a great gift for the church. I had little idea at the time how it would affect my own life. Um, but it turns out that I took a leave of absence from the IMF shortly after that to work with Professor Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia University on an initiative at the Vatican with the Vatican called Ethics in Action, where we brought together uh, religious leaders from all the different traditions. We brought together economists, development practitioners, business leaders, labor leaders, activists, scientists, to discuss the great challenges of sustainable development and in particular to come up with a shared ethical framework that, that could underpin a kind of a response to these challenges. So I did that for a number of years before I finally um, left the IMF. And I would say that all of that was due to, you know, the, um, the experience of having Pope Francis as Pope um, from his, you know, his very initial um, remarks about how he wanted to be a pope of, uh, after his namesake, Pope of St. Francis, a man of peace, of the, of the environment, of nature, of the poor, how he wanted the poor church for the poor. This really resonated deeply with me. And then when he wrote Laudato Si, which I think is just a stunning encyclical, so relevant, so prophetic, so profound, and, you know, and that really wanted, that really spurred me to do something different with my life. And that was the very first tentative steps that led me to write this book, this, this book, Cathonomics. I want to dive in now to your book and to some of the nitty gritty of economics. You mentioned, you know, in your previous responses, a little bit about neoliberalism. And this is one of the central premises of your of your book, right, that the global neoliberal economy isn't working. Um, it's not promoting the common good for all people. 
But before we go any further, I just want to get some definitions down. So what what do we mean when we're talking about the neoliberal economy? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's important to drill down on that because uh, it's a term that's used a lot and often used in a very sloppy way, I have to say. The way I understand neoliberalism from the book is that it is an extension of the values of neoclassical economics into all areas of economic policy. In particular, the idea that efficiency is the highest good, that the goal of economic life is only economic growth, and that a, a, a naive faith that that economic growth will benefit everybody, and the idea that this economic growth is driven solely by the private sector, so the role of the government is basically to get out of the way. Um, so you have all kinds of policies like um, uh, cutbacks in the welfare states, curbs in unions, loosening of, uh, of capital flows, loosening of uh, financial regulations, um, all of these things, privatization, deregulation, very much uh, the, the mantras from the 80s and the 90s. Uh, so that's kind of what I mean by neoliberalism. It's a very unique approach to economics that really took root in the 1980s and 1990s. And so in the book, you lay out how coming from this neoliberal idea, you know, inequality has skyrocketed since the 1980s. And you write this really great little quote that there's nothing fateful about rising inequality. It boils down to policy decisions. So what policy decisions have led to our neoliberal economy? Why doesn't it support the common good? Right. That's a good question. Uh, I would start off by saying that inequality is really driven by the interplay between economics and politics. There are certain economic factors that are driving inequality. There is technological change, which benefits high-skilled workers over low-skilled workers. So high-skilled earn more, owners of capital earn more, low-skilled earn less. So that drives inequality. Globalization is also driving inequality as corporations are able to outsource the activity in countries with low wages, low protections, low taxes. Uh, these are economic factors. But the problem is, um, the issue is, we see different patterns of inequality in different parts of the world. Inequality is much more pronounced in places like the United States and the United Kingdom than it is, say, in continental Europe. I mean, all areas have seen rising inequality, but the U.S. and U.K. much, much more. And that's interesting because all of these economies have faced the same economic factors in terms of this changing technological progress and globalization. The real issue is that some countries decided that they would um, use policy to keep inequality in check rather than use policy to make economic, to make inequality worse. And in countries like the United States, they use policy to make economics, make inequality worse. And some of those uh, factors would be uh, uh, cutting taxes on the rich, uh, cutting social protections, um, making uh, it much more difficult to form a union and bargain collectively, uh, 
looser financial regulations, um, looser um, uh, antitrust uh, standards. All of these issues, all of these factors caused the capital to really gain and labor and workers to really lose out. And this, are, this is why I argue that this is a policy choice. Um, in countries especially where you have um, robust welfare states, uh, proper social spending financed by taxes, you are able to keep inequality in check. Where you have strong collective bargaining, you're able to keep inequality in check. Um, in the United States, you don't have that so much. So we kind of stopped fighting inequality in the 1980s, and we're seeing the consequences of that today. According to Tony, the real winners of the neoliberal economy are not the poor, it's the super rich. He cites an Oxfam report which found that 2,200 billionaires owned more wealth than 4.6 billion people in 2020. And as of early 2022, the world's billionaires held a total of $12.7 trillion in assets. Inequality enables this uncapped explosion of wealth. But is that so bad? Since the era of deregulation in the 1980s, global poverty rates have declined dramatically. There's, you know, a, a common, I think, um, counter-argument in terms of supporting a neoliberal free market economy, right, that, you know, in, in the wake of that, global poverty has drastically decreased in the last three decades. Um, you know, so according to the World Bank, 1.9 billion people lived in extreme poverty worldwide in 1990. And by 2015, that number has dropped to 730 million, which is significant. But why is this maybe a misleading way to measure economic advancement or a narrowing economic gap? Yeah, that's a very important point. And you know, the decline in extreme poverty is very real, very profound, and very important. And the, uh, the statistics you just gave uh, bear that out. Um, let's be clear on that. I mean, Extreme poverty is devastating for human well-being, for human welfare. So we want to eliminate extreme poverty. We want to raise living standards uh, across the world. So this is definitely something that we want to praise. Um, what seems peculiar to me is when people basically say that kind of libertarian economics or neoliberal policy prescriptions are... Are, are, are to, um, to be credited with this. Because the first point I would make here is that most of that decline in extreme poverty took place in China. Now, China is a capitalist country, but it is by no means a neoliberal country. It's very much has an economy that is directed by the state. Um, it's a mixture of state-run enterprises and private enterprises, and even the private enterprises are very much influenced by what the government wants them to do. Um, but China's experience is actually remarkable. Uh, just a few years ago, it eliminated extreme poverty. In the short span of a few decades, it went from an impoverished, village-based, rural economy in 1980 to a super-modern, high-tech economy with zero extreme poverty today. Now, that's remarkable. Now, some, some things it did there would not be in, court, in accord with Catholic social teaching, like its one-child policy and its very strict controls on, on fertility. But in terms of its economic policies, 
I think we, we, are, we are on firm ground when we praise China. But this is not neoliberalism. This is something very different. Another point I would raise on, on that point is that a lot of the decline in extreme poverty, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, has taken place since the year 2000. And that is not solely due to economic growth alone. That is due to a strong program of debt relief initially initiated by the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, and it's also um, uh, to be credited in terms of this is the Millennium Development Goals, a sequence of goals adopted in 2000 that was supposed to run through 2015, um, which were supposed to eliminate extreme poverty and improve health and education outcomes. And health outcomes in particular did really improve across the board in some of the world's poorest countries. And that tells me that, again, extreme poverty is a choice. It's important to have economic growth. I don't deny that. But it's also important to have the proper, um, proper policies that are deliberately targeted to reducing extreme poverty and improving health and education outcomes across the board. And that's what the Millennium Development Goals actually did. Global poverty reduction efforts have had a huge impact in places like China and Sub-Saharan Africa. Still, one in 10 people live in extreme poverty today. And if we don't count the gains made in China, the number of people worldwide who earn less than $2.50 a day has barely changed since 1990. Tony's point here about the Millennium Goals is important, though. A project of the UN financed by the top grossing nations in the world, the Millennium Goals demonstrate what is possible when we shift our priorities and make bold policy choices. Let's just look at the statistics. The global economy right now is valued at $128 trillion. The cost of eliminating global extreme poverty is $400 billion a year. $400 billion might sound like a lot, but in the massive pie of global wealth, it's a sliver, just 0.003%. We could end the AIDS epidemic by 2030 with $40 billion a year. It would cost another $40 billion to provide universal education to low-income countries. And solving climate change, literally solving climate change, will cost $1 trillion a year. These funds are not out of reach. They're just devoted to other priorities. From 2017 to 2019, for example, G20 countries flooded fossil fuel coffers with subsidies at an average of $290 billion a year. And in 2021, global military spending topped $2 trillion for the first time ever. That's a lot of information, I know, but I think it's important to contextualize the scope of our broken value system, and by extension, our economy. It's not all doom and gloom, though. What I found really compelling in Cathonomics was Tony's argument that the neoliberal economy actually comes from a fundamental misdiagnosis of human nature. One of the other you know, points of the book that I found really interesting and really compelling um, 
was, you know, you look at the assumptions of our current economic model, some of which you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, that that a healthy economy should be measured by its efficiency and that individuals always prioritize themselves over the collective. But then you cite a number of economic and psychological um, and even, you know, biological evolutionary studies that demonstrate that humans are much more prone to reciprocity and compassion and gift giving than our economy assumes or even allows. Um, so how does Catholic social teaching explain this? Yeah, that's, I, I found that was really interesting. And when I was writing the book, that was one of the most fascinating chapters to write because it really did prove to me that, you know, the insights of Catholic social teaching are really borne out by how people interact in economic games, evolutionary biology, psychology, even neuroscience, even like the science of the brain, tells us that we are deeply, deeply cooperative human beings motivated by reciprocity and motivated by fairness, who do not like being cheated, do not like unfair outcomes, and are willing to, you know, support each other. Um, and I think, you know, if you compare Catholic social teaching and, say, neoclassical economics, you will see a stark divide. See, in neoclassical economics, you have the idea of rational economic man, homo economicus, which is supposed to be a self-interested um, utility maximizer who is only concerned with maximizing his utility by getting as much stuff on the market as possible in line with self-interest. But all these studies that you just hinted at uh, point to in, an in another direction. And this is where I think Catholic social teaching is much more useful. Um, on one hand, you could say, you know, the philosopher Aristotle, who I reference a lot in the book, says that we are social animals, zoon politicon, that, you know, we are, by our very natures, we are social. We are not individualists. Um, but I think that Catholic social teaching appealing to Christian theology uh, takes that to a whole other level. And that level is that that we are called to mirror the inner life of the Holy Trinity. You know, a life of pure relationality, um, of love, of mutual support, of equality. Um, and that's, to me, a profound and beautiful observation that this is who we are and who we are created to be. Uh, you know, gift giving human beings, uh, relational persons rather than autonomous individuals. By our very nature, we are relational. We are created as relational beings to mirror the life of the Trinity. I just find that incredibly beautiful, um, a part of our theology. And I think, you know, it is not just abstract theology. It has very pro profound implications for how we interact in the economy today. Yeah, I agree. I one of the sentences that I had starred in in the book um, was, I think we are of gift and we are made for gift. And I thought that was such just a beautiful idea. I think people often argue that unregulated free markets spur innovation and growth and that trickles down and it benefits everyone. But according to your research and the research of several economists that you cite, you know, that really hasn't been the case. 
Um, and you make the argument that instead of uncapped financial growth, we should be aiming for this Catholic idea of integral human development, which kind of ties in with those sustainable millennium goals that you had mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, but can you tell us what integral human development is and how the economy can be a tool to accomplish it, which I think is like an, an important framing, right? That the economy is a tool toward that um, as opposed to a means uh, or an end itself. I mean, integral human development, uh, it really goes back to Pope Paul VI, uh, encyclical from 1967, Popularum Progressio. And at a very simple level, integral human development is about the good of the whole person and all peoples. So the whole person and all people. So in other words, the all people is kind of straightforward. You can't exclude anybody. That that relates very clearly to the idea of a common good, that we are all bound together as one people, as one community, and you can't zero anybody out. In neoclassical economics, which is based in utilitarianism, you can zero people out. Um, and we don't want that. But also with integral human development, it's about the whole person. So it's not just your economic dimension of life. It's not just the material qualities of your, of your existence, even though they are important. It's about the social, the political, the aesthetic, the religious, the spiritual, the artistic, um, your sense of meaning and purpose in life. It's a much broader, much more holistic uh, uh, view of, of human development. And it's, you know, there were lots of debates in the 1960s over what development would look like. In the Anglo-Saxon world, it was very much reduced to narrow economic growth and the kind of the financial uh, aspect of it. But Pope Paul VI took a much more encompassing, much more holistic view of what development would look like. And he, you know, and he came up with integral human development. Now, in terms of, you asked a very good question, how would we orient our economy to make it more in line with integral human development? Well, part of the issue is the economic dimension is only part of the dimension of integral human development. So we're really, we're really only talking about a subset of what integral human development is all about. But that's a very important subset, and I would argue that it forms the basis for so much more. So I would argue that it is the role of the government to make sure that you have the material basis of human flourishing, the material basis of integral human development. Now that would include, you know, food, clothing, health, education, uh, Pope Francis likes to say the three L's of land, labor, and lodging. Um, but you need, I mean, it doesn't mean that the state needs to provide all of this directly, but it certainly does mean that it needs to make sure that these goods are provided. Uh, and today, of course, uh, that would include things like a safe, healthy environment. Um, so I, I would argue that once you have these material bases of integral human development, you create the space for people to unfold their capabilities, to develop their capacities, and to become the people they were created to be. 
And that's really at a deep level what integral human development is all about. It's a very you know, deep and profound approach to human development. I think a point about integral human development, too, gets at some of the things that you talked about a little bit earlier, you know, with the example of of China um, and, you know, inequality versus poverty reduction. And that's also something you talk about quite a bit um, in, in the book, you know, is this idea that particularly in the U.S. and in the U.K., you know, we focus a lot of policy and philanthropic efforts on poverty reduction, which is really important. Um, but, you know, you argue that poverty is very much a symptom of rampant inequality in our neoliberal economies. Um, so why should we focus more on solving inequality um, as a way to solve poverty? Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, and indeed, a lot of people do argue that, well, we shouldn't focus so much on inequality. We shouldn't focus so much on what people at the top are earning, but we should focus more on the financial situation of the people at the bottom. And that's a very powerful argument and has a lot of resonance. But nonetheless, I would argue that inequality itself is important. And I think this is the reason. And we're seeing a lot of evidence today from, and I quote in the book, some researchers, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who wrote a couple of books, one called The Spirit Level, one called The Inner Level, and they argue that inequality is associated with so many social and economic dysfunctions from, you know, high indebtedness, worse health, um, drug abuse, uh, lower educational attainment, even obesity, things like this are all associated with inequality. And they go on in the inner level to argue that even the mental health epidemic that we are seeing in society today can, in some aspects anyway, be traced to this rising inequality. Um, and they argue that because, you know, if you lose out in inequality, uh, you tend to withdraw from community life and you tend to suffer from uh, mental health challenges, including depression. But also if you win and society tells you that you won through your own efforts, well, then you tend to get self-aggrandizement and a, ten a tendency to distance yourself from the common good and from the fortunes of your fellow citizens. And that, in But that in turn leads to status anxiety and if further, even even those who are at the top of the of the pile tend to have mental health challenges. Um, so there are also plenty of studies which show that um, inequality can lead to uh, a tendency to prioritize uh, wealth and material goods and consumerism um, and all that stuff which you know, Catholic theology tells you very clearly, going back to the scriptures and the church fathers, is bad for the soul, it corrupts the soul, an inordinate attachment to material goods. You get that with inequality too. You get a tendency to disdain the poor, uh, to distance yourself from the life of the poor. Um, the poor, the rich tend to live in their own enclaves where they never even experience the poor, they never see the poor. Um, 
And this is very important because Pope Francis talks so much about the culture of encounter, about going to the peripheries, the material peripheries and the existential peripheries. But with inequality, that becomes very difficult to do because you live non-overlapping lives. So for all these reasons, I would argue that inequality is kind of a social curse um, that goes beyond kind of narrow economics, but gets into a more visceral um, problem with kind of our society today and in terms of what's going wrong. So for that reason, I would argue that we really need to prioritize uh, tackling inequality. And, and Pope Francis is very clear about that. He talks about inequality all the time. And so what's the role of governments in all of this? What's their role as, as policymakers in addressing inequality and in, you know, kind of reorienting our economic markets toward this idea of, of integral human development? Yeah, I think government has a very important role to play in curbing excessive inequality. And in fact, in, in Catholicomics, I, I actually list 15 specific policy conclusions that, you know, would help. Uh, curb inequality. I'm not going to read the 15 to you, but some of them would be um, if you you can have like proper social safety nets, funded health care and education and social protection. You can have uh, high taxes on the rich and including on wealth. Um, you can have uh, stronger unions, so you can make sure that labor can take its fair share of rising productivity um, and you can have things like uh, co-determination which is a German model whereby workers um, share in have a share in the management of the, of the of the enterprise both at the level of the boards of governance and at the uh, level of work councils uh, at the firm level itself so there are a lot of ways that you can uh, curb inequality um, Again, as I mentioned before, it is a policy choice, and there are actually plenty of policies that can do this, and they're no mystery. They've been done before in the social democratic era from the 1940s through the 1970s. Um, on both sides of the Atlantic, we had strong social democratic policies which were able to keep inequality in check and also, by the way, have record economic growth which goes to show you that they're not incompatible. Um, so, yeah, that's what I, that's, that's what I would say there. Um, it's a policy choice, and we know what policies uh, you need because we've actually chosen them before. So you draw on the writings of Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, who argue that business enterprise must be involved in collective welfare, not just governments and social agencies, which I think is an interesting point. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this approach? Yes, absolutely. I think um, the way to frame this, the way I frame this in the book, is um, based on a document called The Vocation of the Business Leader, which was produced by the Vatican, um, actually under Pope Benedict, but also revised under Pope Francis. And this basically says that, you know, business is supposed to support the common good, just like government is supposed to support the common good. Business cannot be just in the business of maximizing its own profits, often identified with shareholder value, to the detriment of any other social goals. So business must be oriented towards the common good. Now, it can do that in three ways. 
uh, according to this document, and that's good goods, good work, and good wealth. So good goods basically says you want to produce goods that are truly good and services that truly serve. So produce goods and services that serve true human flourishing, that support true integral human development, uh, rather than create kind of destruction, for want of a better term. Then the second one would be good work. Again, in Catholic social teaching, argues very clearly and correctly, I would argue, that work is essential to the human person. It's how you find meaning and fulfillment and happiness. Um, it's part of who you are as a human being. So therefore, policy must, priori must prioritize work and business must prioritize work, uh, including over profits. Um, Catholic social teaching uh, recognizes something called the priority of labor over capital. Very important principle there. And then the third one is good wealth, and that's you know producing uh, wealth and distributing it justly. So be just in everything you do. Do not exploit your market power. Pay your taxes. Uh, don't cheat. Uh, treat your workers well. All this basic stuff. And also on the sustainable side, make sure that you are using your ingenuity to come up with sustainable development solutions and don't pollute the planet and don't contribute to climate change going beyond what international agreements call for. So, you know, this is all the role of, of, of business. And Pope Francis says very clearly, even though he has very strong words uh, in condemnation of neoliberalism and a defective market ideology, he nonetheless has positive things to say about the business economy. He says business can be a noble vocation. But to be a noble vocation, it needs to support the common good. And these are kind of the ways in which business can support the common good. I would say there's kind of a joint vocation between business, labor, and government. Uh, they need to all ally together to support the common good in a kind of harmonious relationship. Catholic social teaching likes to always think that every, everything is in harmony with everything else. So I'm, I'm cognizant that most of our conversation has focused on systems, but I'm curious what role can individuals like the people listening to this podcast, what role can they play in reorienting our economics just in their everyday lives? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's certainly things that people can do as individuals, as consumers, as workers, as investors and as uh, political actors. So, you know, here I would call Laudato Si is actually very good on this, even though it calls for structural solutions to climate change and other environmental uh, problems. Um, it's very clear also that some of the solution is at the level of the individual. You want ecological citizenship, ecological conversion. So you want to basically live your life in a way that's respectful of nature and doesn't contribute to environmental disasters. Likewise, I would say that when you're living your economic life, you want to make sure that your purchasing decisions and your investment decisions are aligned with the common good. Um, do you really need to buy this item today? Is it, is it supporting your basic needs today? Um, or does it belong to the poor? 
remember uh, the church fathers said very clearly, you know, the coat in your closet that you're not using uh, belongs not to you, but to the poor. And I think that's a, you know, the insights of the church fathers offer a very profound challenge for all of us today who live in some of the richest countries in the world, because we tend not to think about things like that too often. We push them out of our minds because they make us feel uncomfortable. They certainly make me feel uncomfortable. Uh, but nonetheless, this is from our faith. This is from, you know, our tradition. And it has very profound implications for how we live our life as consumers today. Likewise, how do we live our lives as investors today? Uh, are we investing in things that are harmful to the planet, that are harmful to um, human well-being? These are all the questions we need to answer for ourselves and not just put this on autopilot and forget about it. Um, so yeah, so I think in response to your question that there are plenty of ways that individuals can, can be a force for change and live, you know, a life, an economic life in accord with the values and principles of Catholic social teaching. Like I said, I can't recommend Tony's book highly enough. So if you want to get a copy for yourself, the link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. This episode was edited and produced by me, Megan Leach. Our communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and Kristen Smith. Original theme music created by Kevin Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.